Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, small town fam. It's Yardley. How are you? Where are you? Are you cooking? Are you working? If it's the latter, I sure hope someone who loves you brings you some feast. So I'm in your ear today because Small Town Dicks has the week off. So there's no new episode today, but of course we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. And in the meantime, if you need a break from your family or traffic or just because, I invite you to sit in with me Dan, Dave, and their mom in a classic Small Town Dicks episode called Mother's Day. I love this episode. It is such a lovely, intimate conversation, and it's sure to keep you company while you chop, slice, mash, or go to work this weekend. And then, because we here at the podcast believe in the Macy's Gimbel's principle of giving, you know, the one from the 1947 classic Miracle on 34th Street, where in the film, Santa Claus tells kids at Macy's that if they can't find the toy they want there, they should bop on over to Gimbel's and try their luck at that department store. Needless to say, the manager at Macy's is less than thrilled with Santa's strategy, but screw that guy. My point is, because you all are the best fans ever, and holidays can be a mixed bag, I want to suggest that when you're done with our Mother's Day encore, that you bop on over to another family-themed true crime podcast from Wondery called Ghost Story. I just finished it, and I really enjoyed it. And then, of course, if you do decide to give it a listen, let us know what you thought of it in the comments on our socials, because you know, we love hearing from you. Alrighty, I'm going to let you go and get on with it. Good luck this weekend if you feel like you need it. Now, please enjoy Mother's Day. Small Town Superfam. Here we are with another delicious piece of snackable content. We have a super duper extra special episode today. We have Detective Dan and Detective Dave's mom with us here. We're calling her mom, just mom. Well, that's her name. It's her, that's <laughs> it's what her I, name. That's what I call her. It is what you call her. To tell us what it's like to be the mom of two awesome detectives. Hi, mom. Hi, thank you for having me. We are so thrilled to have you. 
So, Mom, here's the thing. I think our listeners would really love to know you're in a unique situation where you have both sons who are in law enforcement. And, of course, the obvious question is, do you worry about them? All the time. And I'm sure they tell you not to worry. No, they don't. Oh, they don't. (laughs) You don't have to worry about Dan so much. He's a civilian. Yeah, I'm retired. That's right. She doesn't worry about me anymore at all now. Anytime there's like you see the fires on the news or like if there's an earthquake in Southern California, because I live down there now, I know that I'm getting a text. Are you okay? Even if it's nowhere near where you are. Mom, I'm on fire. (laughs) I can't answer the phone right now. I'm on fire. She sent that text message before where I wasn't even working when something big happened. And I'm like, I'm dead. I just, I'm, I'm dead or I'm injured real bad. So you're incredibly insensitive. <laughs> exactly. I'm horrible when it comes to that stuff because I, I understand where she's coming from. Probably I don't understand where she's coming from. No, you I, don't. I don't have any children but that have found me. <laughs> that have found you. So I don't understand, but I get it. I understand why, why she might worry. Does it annoy you? Everything I do annoys them. <laughs> That's not true. It's kind of odd. Anyone that I'm close to, friends or family, that will reach out if there's been a critical incident. I just don't, I don't operate where I worry about stuff like that. I don't operate in this. I hope people are safe because that stuff's all beyond my control. So when people reach out and and ask me those things, I'm just like, oh, of course I'm fine. Like, I'd tell you if I wasn't. So I make assumptions and it's, I understand. Probably frustrates the hell out of mom. Yeah, when the chief of police calls you to tell you that your son is in the hospital, that's a very scary call. Sure. And when he says he'll be okay, and I'm saying, which one? And he goes, well, and he tells me what hospital they're at. And I go, no, which child? Oh, that's right. I've got two of your sons. Yes, you do. That's upsetting. By the time she got that call, I was feeling great. They had, they had already given me the, the happy juice, so I was feeling great. Oh, well, the first thing he said <laughs> to me when I walked in the hospital room is, no drama, Mom. <laughs> no drama. Because the suspect that I was in a fight with that I got hurt fighting was like three doors down in the same ER. And that's probably also why the chief didn't feel like he had to tell Mom who was hurt because the chief knows that I'm not going to lose a fight. <laughs> This is going to devolve. It's already devolved. Here we go. This is not good. Not good. (laughs) Maybe this was a terrible idea. Dave, was this when you broke your leg? Yeah. Second day in uniform. Right. We've recounted that story. We have. Lots of surgeries. I'm I'm a better man for it. (laughs) I will say this. Having your brother, you know, when we were detectives together, we were doing search warrants. I knew he was next to me or behind me or watching my back when we were kicking in a door and going to grab somebody. I didn't really worry about it because he was there and, and it was just, I knew he had my back. Now that I'm not in law enforcement anymore that I've retired, now I worry about Dave. I do. And so I get it. That's the hardest part about being retired is that you don't have eyes on your brother. It is really hard. Yes. How about for you, Dave? I got hired after Dan, so certainly what prompted me to want to get into law enforcement was 
what he's describing, that I wasn't there with my brother. So I did a few ride-alongs with him, had a great time. Lights and sirens, the woo-woo lights, all that stuff. I was like, I'm in the wrong line of work. And not being there with Dan was one of the biggest drivers for me to get into law enforcement. And then, of course, he's moved on. And it's different not having him here, but it's not something that I'm consciously aware of every day. He sends me messages just like mom does, like, how's everything? You know, those kinds of things. Now mom does ride-alongs with me. Right. <laughs> so uh, it's different not having him around. And it was nice to work with him because I knew what to expect. Right. You have a shorthand. Right. But I also have a family that I'm working with still, you know, like brothers and sisters in blue. So just lost a big part of it is all when Dan moved on. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't worry as much when Dan had his canine when he got Fido, that eased some of it for Dan. Dave, however, will always be my baby. Because he's younger. He's six minutes younger. He's six minutes younger. And he's breakable. And he's... <laughs> Shut up, Dan. <laughs> and he is the baby. Dan's always been the big brother. And when they were working together, it was a little easier when I'd get upset when i go to bed at night and say my prayer. And I'd think, no, nah, they're together. They've had good training. They've been trained by the best. I've been on ride-alongs. I've seen the two of them work together. I got to witness a subject that they were chasing. I was on a ride-along with Dave, and Dave came from the north, and Dan came from the south, and the suspect ran in between their cars, their headlights. And I said, did you guys plan that? And I didn't hear him on the radio at all. And Dave told me on the way, he said, Dan's going to come the other way. No problem. They just knew. They just had a sixth sense for each other. And I was playing chicken with Dan. <laughs> I hit that bastard. <laughs> you no, did that, shut your lights off. Yeah. All that coordination happens over the radio. But you also, when I say that I knew what to expect from Dan, he's a known commodity. I know how his brain works. I know how if he was arriving to a call knowing that I'm coming from a certain area, that he's going to take this route. And you get to know that about all of your coworkers. You see their tendencies. You see how tactical they are. So it's helpful when you're working with people that you worked with for years and you're familiar with because you kind of already know how they're going to approach a situation. Dave and I would talk about it when we'd have somebody run from us or there'd be a pursuit and you hear people get on the radio and say, where do you want me? Well, shit, dude, how long you been doing this? <laughs> I'm giving out pretty precise locations of where we're at and our direction of travel. Think like a bad guy. You should know where to go. That was something that, you know, Dave and Detective George and Detective Kyle and, and Detective Justin, I never had to worry about those things with those guys because they just, they get it. And it's incumbent on guys who have been around and, you know, Dave's a sergeant now and a watch commander to prompt that thought to get guys to change their thinking a little bit because I think some people aren't aware of it until you point it out to them and that was a rewarding thing for me is having a few years on the road I've made a ton of mistakes as a patrol officer but I learned from them and I listened to the older guys uh, and that's what we want guys to do is listen to the experienced officers and don't ask that question again because I want to bonky on the head <laughs> we've had chases uh, my shift I work graveyard, so 
you can imagine the guys with not a lot of seniority get stuck on the least desirable shift, which is working graveyard hours. So I get a lot of young guys. The great thing about them is they're willing to learn. They understand they don't know everything. And they've got a motor. Like, you have to pull back on the reins. Like, slow down, guys. Because they are eager to work and want to do good things. And they enjoy the job. So the job's fresh for them. But I noticed that we would have these vehicle chases and then the guy would bail out of the car and they'd say, and he's running westbound, he's hopping fences. And I just saw this pattern of all the police cars would pile in behind the end of the pursuit. And I'm like, well, you're, you're going to the place we know he's not. Like, <laughs> Spread out. Let's go. Come on. He's going westbound. I would drive west. So just breaking that of them. And it just comes with experience. I made the same mistakes when I was new. And I didn't think that way. I'd want to go to where the action is, even though the action is now going to be way out in front of that car. Everyone piles in right behind it. And it's like, rats, come on, guys. (laughs) (laughs) We're better than this. So it's a learning process for me as a sergeant, for me as a patrol officer, as a detective, and certainly for mom as parents and siblings of police officers. You got to learn too, right? That's true. That's true. But I've been fortunate enough, Yardley, that Dan and Dave have allowed me to go on ride-alongs with them. What has that taught you? Has it given you a level of comfort because now you see how they work? The professionalism. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, uh, there was, I had an experience with them that I was with Dan and they needed to call Dave when David was a detective and Dan wasn't yet, and a baby had died. And that night is when I realized that my sons had grown up, that they were men, and it was really emotional for me. I watched the two of them interact when no one was around, and I was standing back, and they were discussing the pictures, and they were waiting to get okay to go inside the apartment. And I was watching them. I was about five feet away from them, and I was listening to them interact, and it was like, wow, these boys are men. They're not my babies anymore. They're grown men. They're making decisions for other people's lives. And that was an eye-opener for me. Made me really, really grateful that they chose this profession, you know, and that they were doing something that they loved, and they were helping people. So it makes me really proud. And anybody that knows me, knows that my main focus in life is Dan and Dave. And I'm so proud of everything that they choose to do that it's, it's, it's made it a little bit easier, mm-hmm. you know. It's made it a little easier. I think I worry a little bit more about Dave now than I did before. Because Dan isn't there to watch his back? Because Dan's not there and because... Because he's out on patrol again. Well, the attitude, Yardley. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for Dan to keep chiming on how brittle my bones are or something. Drink some milk, man. I've broken a bone since then, man. Jeez. Let it go. <laughs> Beating a dead horse. Can we just let mom finish her yes. thought here? Sorry. <laughs> Gee whiz. Why do you worry more about Dave now? I worry about him now because he has people below him that he has to worry about. He has to stay on top of things for them, for their safety. And they all have families. 
because they have less experience, do you worry about the liability for him? Or do you worry that they, for instance, that they might make mistakes and then Dave could be, he's more in the line of fire? What is the, what is the worry? I worry that if somebody made a mistake or something happened to someone that Dave was working with or was close by, how he would handle things emotionally, mentally, after the fact. I know he could handle everything at the time that it was happening. It's afterwards how he would handle that. Because he takes things so hard. And he loves people so hard. Yes. Yeah. He cares about people a lot. Right. Yeah. So if something happened to one of his people, he would feel responsible. Oh, definitely. There's no doubt in my mind. Dave? I care about the people I work with. We're blessed. We've got a great police department. From top to bottom, we've got great people. So uh, certainly on my shift, uh, the people I work with, they're wonderful. I care about all of them. They're family to me. And if something happened to them, I'm sure I would feel bad. But this is the stuff I don't really think about, is that you just go out and work, you know? Until it's in front of you. Until it's in front of you, and then you're like, oh, i got to deal with that. But like I said, I don't operate in the land of worry because I take that as it comes. So I certainly consider things that might happen, but I don't dwell on them. Because in this job, the minute your mind gets sidetracked on what's not the immediate task at hand, you get complacent and you make bad decisions and and you overlook things that you normally wouldn't have overlooked. So in talking with family and friends, especially who have been on ride-alongs, I've gotten feedback that you didn't really interact with me or you're not paying attention to our conversation. It's because I've got an earpiece in and I'm hearing things on the radio that you would be hearing if you would be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) I'm having to pay attention to that. At the same time, people don't realize that police officers, when they're in a marked patrol unit, we're targets now. And you're always scanning. You're always looking at things. Beyond that, I'm also looking for criminal activity. So even when I'm driving my own personal vehicle, as I go down large thoroughfares, I'm checking side streets all the time. My head is on a swivel. I'm looking at cars coming the other way. I look at license plates and grab license plates that are coming past. And it's just habit. You're looking at faces of drivers. You're looking at how many occupants are in that car. When you come up to a stoplight, you are gauging how far you need to park behind that car because if somebody comes up behind you and tries to pin you in, you need space to go forward to get around that car. And that's not something I ever learned until Dan became a police officer and he pointed it out. (laughs) He's like, why are you so close to that car? I'm like, well, it's just, we're in line. He's like, well, what happens if somebody tried to pin you in right now? I'm like, hadn't thought about that. Well, when you become a police officer, make sure you don't make that mistake. Got it. So when I have people on ride-alongs, a lot of times somebody will say, well, how was your ride-along? I don't know. We hardly even interacted. Well, you're on the job. I mean, it's not a social call. It's not a social call, and my safety's on the line. Right. And I have to be vigilant, and I'm probably not going to pay as much attention to our conversation or be as talkative because I've got a computer, I've got a lot of stuff going on in my ear, and I just don't have that capacity to give writers the attention that they might expect from their good buddy that they've known since high school. 
sorry, I'm in a different capacity right now. You're not going to get me at 100% because my 100%'s on other things. Well, sure. <laughs> on your job. That yeah. seems reasonable. Yeah. And so there's sometimes where I feel on ride alongs, like when mom comes on ride alongs, it's great. I get to spend time with her, but it's not. I don't know that I would characterize it as quality time where we had this great conversation. It's nice to have her there because I like having family in the car with me. And I know it helps her feel better because we're spending time together, but we're not having like in-depth conversations. I'm in business mode. She recognizes that. Hey, I'm good with that. I really thoroughly enjoy watching them work. It makes me so proud that the two of them are just, I didn't realize they were so smart. <laughs> That's a charade. That's a charade. <laughs> Speaking of ride-alongs, you know, when I first started as a cop and I was a patrol guy and people would ride with me, I felt like I had to entertain them. And I had to go out and I had to constantly, I had to find something big for them. And it took me a while to get to a point where, you know, I've got a lot of other stuff that I got to do. And just because you're riding with me doesn't mean that I'm going to ignore those things. So writing reports and people say, dude, come on, like wrap it up. Like, let's go out and find something. I don't want to be here working five hours of overtime to get my reports done. These have to be done now. Like, I'm sorry, man, but this is the way it's going to be. And it's not always your friends that are riding with you or your family. Sometimes you get assigned riders, a civilian, and they're like, well, are you just going to write reports all night? It's like, I have to get this done. This is part of my job. It's my job. Yeah. You're here as a guest. I got stuff to do. And I think people lose sight of that sometimes. I've had other riders that I kicked out of my car before. One lady, she kept wanting me to stop people who were minorities. Oh. And I was like, why? Like, why? Are you seeing something that I'm not seeing? She's like, well, he's a Mexican. I'm like, all right, you're done. <laughs> we are done. Are you kidding me right now? Out you go. Yeah. And she's like, he just looks like a criminal. Oh, my God, please shut up. Like, I'm driving you straight back to the stage. You're never going to ride here again, ever. It's ridiculous. And people think that because they are on a ride-along that they get to basically dictate what you're going to do that night. Well, and they got their little taste of power. They're in the police car, and, yeah, let's go jam some people up. And Dan's right. Every time I have a rider, I feel the need to find something to entertain them. I want to go fast. <laughs> really fast. She always says that, too. I want to go as fast Are we going to go fast can. tonight? Can we go fast on this call? As a patrol officer, I was really active. As a sergeant, if I'm out there digging up stuff, then I'm going to be preoccupied with that. And I'm digging up stuff that I can't deal with because I'm supposed to be supervising. And I have to approve reports and I have administrative duties. I can't be out there stopping every car and chasing taillights all night. I can't be out contacting people on bikes. I'm still out on patrol, but you got to put your blinders on a little bit. It's just more selective. And so there's this thing called the rider's curse. I yes. think we discussed it when you were on the ride along, Yardley. Yeah. <laughs> were you the curse? I was a little bit of the curse. The rider's curse. Actually, we did a bunch of stuff, but apparently the night before had been just madness. But we did some really interesting stuff. But compared to other nights, it was sort of not that big a deal. I was satisfied. Yeah, the writer's curse is where you want something to happen, and it's the slowest, most boring night in police history. 
I wouldn't characterize it that way at all, but it was, uh, we got to go fast. We went like 105 miles an hour at least twice. That was terrifying to me. Oh, I love it. I got to do 120, I think. What? I don't know who you're talking about. I never went that fast. I don't even think my car would go that fast. I think it was pretty close. Well, maybe the person that you were chasing was doing 120 and we were trying to catch up. Yeah. I don't have a flux capacitor in does my that, car. Does that cover you a little bit? <laughs> I got your six. I don't recall that. I got your six. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you guys, sometimes you are sort of like, yes, mom, I'm fine. So do you try not to text them if you see that there's been a shooting or a fire or a thing? Like, do you try to contain your worry or do you just like, I'm your mother, I'm texting you? Yardley, I try at first. Now, the first big one that I got was when an officer was killed. I was working late that night and I worked at a town about 30, 35 miles from here. And I was living north of where we are. And one of my employees called me and said, there's been a shooting and there's an officer down in the town that you're from. And I said, what? And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. And she said, my husband's okay. Her husband was an officer in the same. And I said, okay. And she said, I'm not sure about Dan and Dave. And I said... Um, okay. So I just hung up the phone. I said, thanks for letting me know. I hung up the phone and I sat there for a minute and I thought, okay, somebody would have called me. And then I said, bullshit. (laughs) And I called the non-emergency number and I said, I know you're busy. I know this is crazy, but I told her who I was. And I said, I have to know, are my sons okay? You called the non-emergency number of the police department? Yes. And I said, I have to know, are my sons okay? And she said, they're okay. They are involved, but they're both okay at this point. I said, okay, I'll let you go. So I called a really good friend of mine that works in the same town. And I said, I need your help. She said, what? And I said, I need you to meet me. And I told her what was going on. And I said, meet me down there. I've got to be close in case they need me. And so we sat at a local restaurant for several hours just down the street from the police department in case I needed. And then a little later, I got a text from Dan that said, I'm okay. Dave's okay. I'm going home. And I thought, that's not enough. I got to know. I got to know what's going on. So I went and parked across the street from the police department and just sat there And I saw Dave talking to someone through a window. You know, I was sitting in my car. Were you by yourself? No, my friend was with me. Okay. Her name's Kelsey. She was with me, and she and I sat there, and she held my hand all night. I think we were out till 2, 3 o'clock in the morning just sitting out here, making sure that things were okay. I didn't know if Dan was going to come back. And I did drive by his place once to make sure that he was okay. And... Didn't talk to him, but I just had to make sure that he's okay. And I could see Dave, so I knew that he was okay, but I knew they were both really upset. So that was a tough one for me. That was really tough. And that was a long drive getting down here. That 30 miles was, that was rough. When you hear of things like 
this officer that was murdered. People aren't as self-aware anymore, especially to families of police officers. Stuff hits social media and people start making comments and even hearing mom tell the story about that, I recognized some failures on my part that day that I wasn't considering all the people that might be worried about me and the limited info that they would have about this situation. I knew I was fine. I was chasing... Bad guy. Bad woman. Bad woman. Yeah. So I think that I didn't have the self-awareness where you reach out to your family and they understand, like... I should have been, like, proactive about that. For a few hours, we were dealing with the situation. But on the way back in, I could have navigated that night much more effectively for my family. And just hearing it now, like, now I recognize. God forbid there's something like that to happen again. I'm going to be a little bit more proactive about <laughs> giving my family a heads up about what's going on. I've never said anything to Dan and Dave about that. I don't think they knew I was out there. No. It was the worst day of my life that day. When it was all over with, I'd been standing next to Dave for most of it, most of the end of it. And maybe one day we'll talk about this case, but it has to involve one other person. But at the end of that day, we were way up in the woods, and I didn't have any cell phone coverage. And I remember right when I broke that threshold where I had service again, my phone lit up like a Christmas tree. I had messages from like 30 people. Are you okay? Here's the problem with that. Like if I don't answer, you're going to assume that I'm not okay. But simply from where we were and what we were doing, I couldn't answer those texts. It probably ruined a lot of people's days that we weren't able to communicate with them. But I mean, it's just that the nature of this job is you, you can't always reach out and you can't call time out. There aren't any timeouts. You have these situations where the relationships I've been in where you get a text message from your spouse or partner and the officer doesn't respond because I might be in the ER where it's kind of frowned upon to use cell phone devices while you're among all these sick and injured people and I'm dealing with a stabbing victim who's I'm trying to get a statement from. She might not hear from me for hours. I might not respond to your text message. I might not respond to your text message because it's been a bad day and I just got off a call with horrible circumstances involving a kid. And I don't want to talk to anybody. I just want to be with myself. And my friends now, they understand, like, I might not hear from them today. Like, why does it take you so long to return texts? Dude, <laughs> I got a job, man. Right. Like, sorry. And, and a unique job with, with that nobody else gets. You've always, you've always said if you don't, do this job, you don't really understand what this job takes and what it takes out of you. Yeah. It takes huge bites out of you sometimes, for sure. Obviously, it's tough on family. You know, just thinking about this day, I mean, it's the biggest day in my career was that day. And I never thought of, I hope my mom's okay. I never thought about that. But now hearing it, oops, sorry, mom. <laughs> no, not at all. I, um, I knew they had a job to do. I was doing a whole lot of praying, and I knew that I was going to be close. If I got that call that, Mom, I need to talk, I'm right here. I'm in the parking lot. And that's what I, you know, I figured that's what I needed to do. So, and I was 
for selfish reasons. You know, I wanted to be there because I wanted to be there. How come you didn't get out of the car once you saw Dave across the street? Because they were working. They were working and he was talking with someone and I knew that it was none of my business. You know, I knew that they would get in contact with me. I don't think I called Dan. If I did, I left a message and just said, let me know you're okay. But I don't remember calling either one of them until much later. You know, the problem with that day was the last thing that I wanted to do was answer every text and relive that moment 30 times. I didn't want to relive it at all. So I totally shut down, completely shut down. It was a failure on my part. Made really horrible choices after this uh, for a month. Every night when I would get home from work, I would drink. And the reason why I drank is because I was having flashbacks to that moment of working on this officer. And I could feel it in my hands. My hands would shake and uh, was dealing with a lot of stuff that I wasn't prepared to deal with. And my answer for that was open a bottle of whiskey and drink until you pass out so you can actually sleep. Because I couldn't sleep. I would try to sleep, but I couldn't. I was circling the drain. Can you just explain briefly what you mean when you say you could feel it in your hands? I did CPR on this officer, and I can... I mean, if I think about it today, I can feel it in my hands, what that sensation is like. And it's not pleasant. I, obviously, I get emotional talking about it. Um, and this is the effect that this situation had on me. I got an F minus in dealing with it. I think the hardest part for me was knowing that I can't deal with what I'm dealing with emotionally. And there's a widow out there who her whole world just got destroyed. It's horrible. I want other officers who are out there, other people who have been involved in a situation like this, like, before it gets worse, please ask for help. It's not. Swallow your pride. Don't make the same mistakes that I did where you think that the answers you're looking for are at the bottom of a bottle of whiskey because they are not. It's quite the opposite. I had to really work my ass off to try to regain the trust of people that I worked with. Alcohol was was killing me. I needed help and I didn't know how to ask for it. I wasn't suicidal, but I was drowning myself in alcohol. And uh, that's hard for me to admit because I feel like I'm stronger than that. But I embarrassed my police department. I embarrassed my profession. I embarrassed my brother. I embarrassed my family. I embarrassed myself. I didn't stop. I didn't stop until um, there was an intervention. <laughs> It saved my life. It really did. It's really hard to admit. Dave tried to save me, and I fucking couldn't get out of my own way. You know, I shut myself down from my family, and uh, I paid a really heavy price for doing that. And, you know, if there are other officers out there that are listening to this or a family member, stay with them. You know, you got to stay with them. I was so stubborn that I just I couldn't get out of my own way. 
But it's not a culture or your profession doesn't foster a culture that that says it's okay to reach out for help. They offer it, but it's not encouraged. You've often said it. I remember they asked me, uh, how you doing? And I said, I'm not doing well. And they said, have you gotten any sleep? And I said, I've gotten about two hours in the last three days. And they said, are you going to be okay to work tomorrow? I'm like, it's that suck it up buttercup kind of mentality. Our department nowadays would handle it differently. And, you know, I'm not trying to throw my department under the bus, but part of the reason why is this hadn't happened around here for 30 or 40 years. So nobody knew how to how to proceed. What hadn't happened? A officer being murdered. It hadn't happened in, in decades. And so nobody knew what to do. People say, I understand how you're feeling. You don't have a clue of how I'm feeling. You have no fucking clue. Don't tell me that. It's insulting to me. Dave knew how I felt because Dave was with me. And there was another officer who was my coach, and she knew how I felt because we were together working on, on this hero, this father that lost his life. It was, uh, like I said, I don't want to throw my department under the bus. They just didn't know what to do. We were back at work the next day. Nowadays, you might get a day or two off to decompress and gather yourself. And here's the thing. Shitty things happen in this job, and it's kind of what we, I hate to say we signed up for it, but if I didn't want to be responding to emergencies and dealing with people and horrible crisis and traumatic incidents, I would have gotten a job as an accountant. I would have continued a job as a management consultant. So you got to deal with this stuff. Certainly, when you have an incident that's as impactful as this one, you got to be smart about how you reintroduce yourself back into your workday. And like Dan said, we had never dealt with this around here. So it was just like, oh, that's what we do. Back to work. Let's go. And when you're dealing with that kind of circumstance, you know, we're not like a huge metropolitan area like Houston or Dallas or New York or one of those big cities where officers, unfortunately, get shot and or killed on a much more frequent basis than they do in our state. So we're not prepared. We're not set up for the tale of those incidents. You don't know how to deal with the wake of everything that happens after that. We had like debriefs, but those were days and weeks after this event rather than fresh, hey, let's get these guys and make sure they're squared away. I know they just dealt with something nobody's ever dealt with around here. It's just different. So police departments, we don't deal with these stressful incidents like other people would deal with them. That's why you do what you do, and the rest of us don't. Right. I might have two more in this shift. (laughs) Yes. You know? I think about some of the times where we go out to a call and you recognize this is one I'll never forget. Horrible incident. And you clear that call when you're done. And the next call you go to is a dispute because somebody took a kid's Xbox away. And you go from this horrible incident where lives are changed forever and you go to this stupid dispute where it's like, really, now I got to go referee your life after I just dealt with this shit? But they don't know that. Sure. I left a child co-sleeping dead baby call one time. And right after clearing that call, 
my dispatcher sends me to a family dispute. I went to this house. I was pissed off that I immediately got dispatched to another call because of what I just dealt with five minutes ago. And I get to this family dispute and they are arguing over who gets to use the Xbox. Why are you there? They called the police. They wanted me to come referee their dispute about who gets to use the Xbox next. But doesn't dispatch go, we don't do that? Well, it was escalating and they were yelling and screaming. So dispatch says, oh, this could get worse. So they send me to it. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You guys are arguing about who gets to use the Xbox. Oh, my God. This is where you see where cops are like, oh, the dysfunction we get to see and witness and deal with. It makes you appreciate the way you were raised. We didn't deal with that. You get five tokens a year to use at your discretion for police services. That's a lot of tokens, <laughs> by the way. Some people would go through 50. Well, there was a couple times that... You wanted to. <laughs> it could have happened. But you didn't. You didn't, Mom. When they were fighting, there was a couple times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did you think that they would grow up to be? Hmm. I thought Dan and Dave would be professional baseball players. Guilty. Definitely thought they would both play pro ball. When Dave got hurt, what happened to you? I tore my rotator cuff. Without the rotator cuff tear, I would not have played pro baseball. I don't know. I heard you were really good. You were he a pitcher. Would. He would have. He was a left-handed pitcher, listeners. I'm humble about that. He was damn fucking good. That's the story on the street. That's the story. Yeah. Filthy. <laughs> Just nasty stuff. And humble. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really thought our life would be baseball forever. Yeah. Really? Yeah. You didn't think I was going to be like a bodybuilder? She's looking at him like, who are you talking like to? Like a, a model or something? <laughs> now, I, I was a little surprised when Dave left his job in D.C. Why? Because it was such a good job? Yeah, when he was working back east, I thought he was going to stay back there. In fact, I think I even told him at one time, you better not marry anybody from back there. And if you do, you better make sure she's planning on moving out here. Why? Because you wanted him close to you. Yeah, I'd, I didn't want him clear across the country. Sure. Yeah. And didn't you have top secret clearance and stuff over there? No, I worked on some projects where you had to have not top secret clearance, but a secret clearance. That wasn't the majority of my work. The jobs I worked were with the Department of Defense and Transportation Agencies and a certain Aeronautical and Space Administration. NASA? Maybe. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but they weren't like top secret projects. Uh, there's certainly information that I was made aware of that other people don't know about, but I wasn't one of those like super secret consultants. Aliens? Have no idea. Mm. Harumph. Right. Fun job for a while, and then I went on a ride-along. And I was like, Jesus, my job is so boring. I just go to meetings to have meetings to justify budgets that are going up every year because we had this meeting. Right. <laughs> but you had a nice view. I did. I had some great projects. Yeah. Uh, San Francisco. Worked out of San Francisco in the financial district. In a tall building. Love that city. I've had a pretty great life. And it's set up by the situation I grew up in. Right. 
good parents that taught us the difference between right and wrong and gave us opportunities that people that I grew up with or people I went to school with didn't have. I'm grateful. I, I know that I've had a blessed life. I don't take that for granted at all. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, dog. <laughs> Is there anything that you want to say to your mom or anything you want to ask her? I got something. How can I do better communication-wise? In a perfect world, what do you get from me? Like if something bad happens, you want to hear from me as soon as possible, even if it's in a different agency. Like I'm asking, what's your ask? What's the dream? Yeah. I want to spend more time with you. Oh, all right. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. <laughs> I want more time. All right. Sweet. I think what I would say to her is, Doing this job, you come to appreciate the way you were raised with accountability and consequences and structure in your life. My mom and my dad divorced when we were five, five or six years old. And the thing that I really admire about my mom and my dad is they didn't argue in front of us. Even though they would have disagreements, they wouldn't argue in front of us because they were more concerned about our welfare and they didn't want us seeing them have arguments. And it was important to them. And they were supportive of us. They are friendly to each other. They're not mean. They don't say negative things about the other in front of Dave and I. And that's something that we encounter quite a bit in this job. And I think it takes quite a strong person to raise their child that way. And I really respect that. And that's what I really respect about my parents. I don't believe that I've ever said anything negative about your father, ever. Even going through the divorce and the separation, never. My dad's married to, who's been our stepmom for, geez, not going to give my age away, but over 35 years. And she was the same way. There wasn't any drama growing up. My mom got along with my stepmom and my dad. It was always civil. It was always stable. There was not chaos, there wasn't drama, there wasn't backstabbing. The big picture was, let's raise good kids with values who are considerate, respectful, and humble. Dan's not humble. Uh, <laughs> but the rest of us, we fared pretty well. I talk about opportunities. We had every opportunity to be successful, set up by good parenting, who kept the big picture in mind. Never saw fighting yelling, screaming, that kind of stuff. Didn't grow up with it. Now I see it multiple times a night, and I always scratch my head. I'm like, I just don't get it. Sure, what is that innate of? Right. It's amazing. You know, that stability, that work ethic, that integrity is so evident in the way you both conduct yourselves. It's impressive. Thank you. It's lovely. I owe it all to this woman and my father and my stepmother. Dave and I are very, very lucky. Thank you. That's sweet. As Dan and Dave's mother, you know I'm really proud of them, Yardley. Yes. Well, this was fantastic. I love this conversation. Mom, we love you. We hope you'll come back. I love you so much, all three of you. And what about I'm Gary just, and Logan? Well, <laughs> I really love you guys. We'll see each other soon, I'm sure. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. Small town super fam. 
Come on, this was a meal on Patreon. This is a fantastic five-course meal. Snackable content. Thank you. Thank you. I know Dave will eat it. Mother... (laughs) Dave, I love you. Stay safe out there. Mom, I love you. I love you too, Dan. This was surprisingly enjoyable. I thought we were going to get into, like, embarrassing photos as kids and all that stuff. I'm glad we avoided that. Well, you didn't tell me ahead of time. Or I would have. It's all verbal. It would have been useless to bring photos. (laughs) It would have. Thanks for that. That was a lovely backhanded compliment. Surprisingly enjoyable. Oi. Okay. Thank you so much. This was an absolute joy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and me, Yardley Smith, and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. Our production manager is Logan Heftel. Our senior editor is Soren Bajan. And our editor is Christina Bracamontes. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor and The Real Nick Smitty. Our social media is run by the one and only Monica Scott. Our music is composed by John Forrest. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town Fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Small Town Dicks. We love hearing from you. And if you support us on Patreon, your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash smalltowndickspodcast. That's right. Your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest, rare, true crime cases told, as always, by the detectives who investigated them. So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.